0: Uh, i think i mentioned uh two weeks ago when we were last in first kings that we've come to a bit of a uh, a transition point in the book of kings and uh, a convenient one to hit pause and uh, back in 2000 we started a sermon series of topical sermons moving through the catechism the shorter catechism and uh we've done a little bit every year all we have left is the last section, the beginning of which we were looking at this this evening together um, about the means of grace, word sacraments, and prayer, and that's what I want to do uh, this fall. And I, I think I mentioned when we were last in Kings, it's a great moment for that because we've looked at week after week after week of depressing Israel and Judah, both getting worship wrong and falling within one generation into just Uh, horrible sin. And if we want to avoid uh, being just like that, if we as the church today want to have revival, how do we go about that? And where do we focus? And in God's providence, that's the very thing we're looking at in the catechism. So we're switching over to the catechism for the rest of the fall, and then we'll go back to Kings and pick up with the, the Elijah narrative, which actually just picks up on the same theme again. Um, and we'll do that, Lord willing, the beginning of the the new year. Um, so tonight we're looking at at Acts chapter two, and we'll read verses forty through forty-seven. Recall this is on the day of Pentecost when uh, Peter has just uh, preached that sermon. Of course, all the all ten apostles, all eleven apostles are preaching their sermons. We just get Peter's as the kind of prime example. Uh, my, my thought on that is they're, they're all preaching sermons in different languages, and what do you know? Peter seems to be the one that's preaching it in their own language. And he's the one who will later be referred to as the, the ap- apostle to the Jews, Paul says. And so I, I think maybe on the day of Pentecost, the others were all still busy preaching in other languages. And Peter's the one that gets the job of preaching in, in Jewish Uh, In Hebrew, I should say, to the Hebrews. Um, And so right as his sermon ends, this is what we read. The word of our God from Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily in one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are part of this same church and that you are continuing to add to our number daily those, those who are being saved, are being saved. Lord, we thank you for this in our own lives. We also pray this for any of the children here who have not known you yet. And we pray this for those with whom we in, encounter in daily life, our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, that they might also be added to this number. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, now instruct us and guide us from this, your word, and cause our hearts to long after you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I think there are crayons back there if you need to go get some. The, the coloring page is, what is the coloring page? It's a church building. Ours doesn't quite look like that. We don't actually own one. So... On the back, I want you to draw something a little later in the sermon. I'm going to talk about what Acts 2, 42 shows us about how the church is defined. Uh, But until then, you can color that one if you go and get some colors back there. You can go grab some, or you can just listen. Just thinking about our, our culture and the state of the church today, we've been looking again at King's this summer and fall and it's bleak and dark and depressing and we could all uh, feel good that we aren't them. Um, but then we can reflect on the church in America today. And I was reflecting on that. Of course, it's, it's hard to dissect um, some of the, the worst things about the evangelical church in America from the culture itself, but maybe that's the problem. <laughs> the culture isn't a christian one and yet so much of evangelicalism looks exactly like the culture and so it's it's hard to dissect those things this is not good we have confusion over faith not not among the culture alone sometimes worst in evangelicalism confusion about what faith means what the what doctrine should be shifting an inconsistent doctrine in our own community not far from here there are, two false teachers with a, a gathering of people around them who are calling themselves Christian and yet yes. denying the, the word of God is the Bible, uh, or the, the Bible is the word of God, I should say, denying that Christ uh, accomplished atonement on the cross or needed to, uh, denying Christ's very person and works, uh, and yet calling themselves Christians. And And a lot of evangelicals are are... are falling for this kind of thing, not just in our community with one group, but throughout our culture and throughout evangelicalism. There's just spiritual slothfulness in the church today. I was looking at a couple of polls this week. 1960, a poll was done, and of those Americans who were asked these questions, uh, in 1960, 75% of those polled in America said that they were members of a local church, 75%. Jump forward to 2020, only 47% made this same claim. And realize that's 2020, I, I believe, before church shutdowns. <laughs> so you, you might extrapolate that the number would be a bit lower now. I could be wrong about that. But between 1960, 75% of Americans claimed church membership, and in 2020, 47%. That's a huge drop. Now, we might say that there's a good thing there. There were a lot of people who were members of churches who put on the three-piece suit or the, uh, the nice dress every Sunday and went to church and sat in a pew because it was culturally respectable, or any number of other fake things like that. So so the fact that the percentage is down doesn't necessarily mean there are less Christians, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing when the world stops pretending to be a Christian. So we, we could say that, but I think we, we have to also say that there's a decrease in interest in the religion of the scriptures. You may be interested to know that in 1961, the church growth movement came to America I'm sure it's pure coincidence that the numbers changed between 60 and 2020, and, and church growth came in 1961. I Sus- suspect it's not pure coincidence. Um, depression and anxiety within the church itself it, it, it has skyrocketed. Now, again, we might say people um, hid that in the church in past times, that people were just as depressed just as anxious. Uh, there was just as much uh, suicidal thought maybe, uh, but you know, Christians don't get depressed and so we're going to hide it. And and to whatever extent we as Christians can acknowledge that David got depressed a lot. And like David, we get depressed. And to be honest about that, but then to take it to the Lord, uh, that's a good thing. So the the fact that depression and anxiety rates or skyrocketing in the church isn't necessarily purely a bad thing, but it is is—it is a struggle to think that in 2023, so just a year ago, one of the polls showed 32% of adults in America admit to serious depression and anxiety. And that number was not any lower for the churched versus the unchurched. 32%, that's, I'm not great at my math, but I think that's almost just, just one point away from one-third of Americans struggle with severe anxiety and depression. And that's in the church as well. Suicide in America is at the highest rate it's been since the Great Depression. We have a lot of work to do to get as high as the Great Depression suicide rate was. It's, it's still quite a few percentage points above where we're at, thankfully. Um, uh, but we also, we also haven't crashed quite as far yet, have we? And, and it feels like maybe we're in that direction. But suicide rates are the highest they've been since the 1930s. And despite the fact, with whatever negatives there are in our co- economy and, uh, and so forth in our culture, nonetheless, on average, we have far more possessions far more retirement accounts and nest eggs, far more vacation time or just days off, and a a vast amount more of mental health days, which talk to anyone 20 years ago about a mental health day, and they would have looked at you, what what in the world are you talking about? You get up and you go to work and get over it, right? We have all these things, and and yet our suicide rate is higher. And that is that is a little bit less for the church than for the world, but sadly not a huge percentage different today. The divorce rate in the church, uh, one law firm that specializes in divorce gave the statistic this year that 20 to 25% of Christian marriages end in divorce, quote, with higher percentages reported among millennials and the younger generations of believers. <laughs> uh, millennials and younger. I'm, I'm not pointing the finger at your marriages, by the way, or your relationship and its future. Uh, but but that, that's us, right? That's our, our ages? Pretty much. Higher than 25% in the church. All of these and many other negative statistics are at an all-time high. So, having looked at kings for six months and felt how bad they are, and then reflecting on all these statistics about the evangelical church and the culture in which it's found, uh, it's uh, it's all at an all-time high, isn't it? And that's tragic, and it's terrifying. Previous generations of believers held tightly to what they called the means of grace. You confessed with me, with the shorter catechism, uh, what those means of grace are, especially, there might be some others, but especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. So the, the Bible, and later in the catechism, we'll get into the Bible both read and preached, uh, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer and previous generations clung to these things for strength. <clears throat> you can read it in their journals. you can read it in their uh, in the sermons that were preached to them. They clung to these things for strength, for the battle, with all of the struggles we've just mentioned, which which all these things I've just mentioned aren't new to the church. we're just we're just, were dying to, in a lot of these areas at a higher rate than uh, previous generations may have. And yet they, they had something to combat all of this with. They held tight to the word, the sacraments, and prayer. So perhaps that 1961 arrival of church growth movement in the U.S. isn't so insignificant to these rates going up. The church growth movement, if you're not familiar with that, asks this question how do we get the most growth it's right there in the name right church growth how do we get the most growth how do we get the most people to come to church well uh, the simple assessment that was given very quickly with the church growth movement was that people don't like going to a church where they have to confess their sin that was that was one of the first things a lot of good churches still don't confess sin in worship, do they? It's a rare thing to find that, a confession of sin. Uh, and yet, that was that was one of the first things to go, because no one wants to be told they're a bad person right at the beginning of the worship service like crazy people at Christchurch do, right? The first thing you do, you don't even get to sing a hymn first. You got to confess your sins. No one wants that, so we, we'll get rid of that. We, we don't want long sermons, Because that's just exhausting. We we have busy work all week. We we don't want that. We don't want long scripture readings. We don't want... If we do have sermons, we want them short. And and we want them to be relevant. What a great word. Relevant. Meaning, three ways to keep your marriage together. The statistics just showed us how well those series have been doing lately. Over the past 40 years. Um, You know, eight ways to be a better fill in the blank, right? And, and again, how have those things been doing? But, you know, the church growth movement came in and basically sidelined the means of grace. Uh, who, who wants to go to a church and be told, we're about to do this weird thing with bread and juice or wine, and you're not allowed to participate unless you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ? What visitor wants that? Well, all churches until about 1950 had some standard of saying you need to be part of the church some church of jesus christ to partake of the lord's supper in in the last 30 years a lot of churches would just say oh yeah you've never gone to the never gone to church in your life before and you don't believe the gospel but sure go go ahead and take the lord's supper with us if we have it at all and increasingly that's sidelined as well Uh, in in fact You notice baptisms often get pushed out of worship altogether, and I've tried very hard to keep us from doing that, even when we do an outdoor evening uh, baptism, like at at Chris's house. I always try to make sure it's still in the context of a worship service. You guys got a sermon before you were baptized, right? So, So why? Because it's part of worship, but we want to sideline that, and we want to... To make that a separate thing worship needs to entertain or be enjoyable and so i I think it's not insignificant that as the means of grace kind of get pushed to the side more and more these statistics go up it it, it's not a surprise that when we minimize these things the church starts treating the means of grace more casually right if the pastor doesn't make a big deal out of word sacraments and prayer the congregation starts making less of a big deal out of word, sacraments, and prayer. And I'm a little encouraged by some of these apps for devotions that I've been seeing lately. I don't love the fact that they're all apps for devotions, but some of them have a lot more word in them. I think far too much devotional life has become, here's this devotion someone wrote, and it might have a verse at the top of the page, or it might not. Uh, the, the word is even disappearing from how we do devotions. Why? Because it's become less of an issue in the church from the pastors themselves. It shouldn't be a surprise when we minimize these things in, in worship that uh, we pursue grace through more emotional issues, areas, means, or, or that we pursue uh, a spiritual life that, that has increased struggles because we're trusting in our emotions. Uh, and and we could go on and on, right? We we look for shacks in the woods where we can go off and meet Jesus and have him apologize for the things we don't like about him. Instead of pursuing him in the word and in the church. Uh, we, um, I'll leave it at that. Acts 2. Day one of the church. Good place to go if we want to see what the church ought to be or how God showers his grace. Of course, on the day of Pentecost, we we see the main thing about God showering his grace on people. What we could call the inward grace of God is what? The Holy Spirit falls upon the church. The Holy Spirit moves in hearts and minds to work life in them, to bring the dead to life, to give rebirth, regeneration, renewal, and conform their, their minds and their hearts so that that people believe. There's the inward work of the Holy Spirit, but we also see in Acts 2 the outward, ordinary means or tools that the Holy Spirit uses. So as we look at these verses. For example, verse 40, we find preaching emphasized. Verse 41, baptism emphasized. Verse 42, uh, those those who have been added together. Added to what? Added to each other. That is baptism unites you to the visible church. It unites you to the, the visible body of Christ on earth. And then what did they do? In some of the revivals that even took place in this region over the past several hundred years, that you would you would have people who walked forward and were baptized at a revival service. And I remember hearing actually someone years ago actually tell me, "Well, my grandfather did that at, some, at whatever revival service, at whatever awakening, and uh, he prayed the sinner's prayer and he was baptized and." And then he went home and he never stepped foot inside a church again. And he beat my mother. And he was such a, a horrible, you know, fill in all the blanks. So that's why Christianity is a, a big, a big lie, isn't it? Is that what we find, though, in this moment in Acts 2? They're baptized, they're added to the visible church. And what do they do? They continue, verse uh, 42. They continue steadfastly. It's their life now. And verse 42 is especially, I believe, showing us Lord's Day worship. What do they continue in? Verse 42, apostolic doctrine. What does that look like? Is that a, a book they were handed? Here, apostolic doctrine, like the catechisms we have. Well, hopefully our catechisms will reflect the apostolic doctrine. But but what is being said, they were steadfast in hearing the word read and preached. That's apostolic doctrine. Faithful reading and preaching of God's word. In fact, look at Peter's sermon that day. It's full of scripture. Scripture read, scripture preached. Uh, They continued steadfastly in the apostolic doctrine, in the fellowship, Uh, This word koinonia in the Greek uh, can refer to a number of different things. One of them could potentially be the the giving of tithes, the, the fellowship of giving for a cause, so tithes and offerings. But I think far more likely the way we often see it used in that day was the idea of corporate worship. I think that's the biggest argument for this being Lord's Day worship in verse 42 corporate worship. So a lot of the zealots, for example, when you joined a zealot group, you would join the, the koinonia would be their special meeting time, their worship time. And so what Luke is telling us is the new Testament church had the Lord's day, the day of resurrection as a a set apart worship time. And he's going to emphasize that first day of the week in the book of Acts. They, on that day, The first day of the week at corporate worship had the reading and preaching of scripture. They also had the breaking of bread. That's not hard to figure out what that is, right? The Lord's Supper. They've been baptized. There's one sacrament. And they also celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then the prayers. It doesn't show up as the prayers in most of our translations. But it it should be the prayers, which could refer to one of two things, both corporate. Nothing against your personal prayers. Those, those are means of grace too. God lets you talk to him whenever and wherever. That's wonderful. But here, probably what's being referred to is either the daily prayer services. Remember, remember excuse me, remember that people didn't have Bibles of their own and some of them couldn't read. Although the Jews had a far higher reading percentage than most nations which people often forget, It's quite high. It's funny how having divine revelation written down makes you learn things. Isn't it amazing? It has a cultural significance. But anyway, uh, most of them didn't have a copy of the Bible that they could own. And so every day at the temple, there were prayer services morning and evening when the sacrifices were being done. In the book of Acts in Jerusalem for a while, we find the church continuing to worship. They don't worship where the sacrifices are being done, not not after Christ rises from the dead, but we find them in Solomon's porch, which is a little off to the side. It's kind of like renting a, a meeting room at the temple to have a prayer service. But they continued having prayer together daily for devotional time, maybe on your way to work, maybe on your way to market, whatever the thing might be. Or it could refer to pastoral prayers during corporate worship. Either way, the prayers would suggest this corporate idea. So Acts 2.42 shows us worship that continues and what it looks like, the means of grace. And then notice verse 43. I think in verse 43 we're shown two results within the community of remaining steadfast in the means of grace we probably are tempted to read verse 43 as saying, then fear came upon every soul because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. You know, if you see miracles, if you watch faith healings, wow, the the culture's gonna notice. That's actually not what verse 43 says, is it? Then, then, that, uh, what, what does the then refer back to? This is basic grammar. We don't use basic grammar when we read very well, I don't think. Basic grammar. Then refers to something that has happened, right? Because, verse 42, they were worshiping God, using the means of grace, then two things resulted. People feared God. And the apostles were able to do signs and wonders. Well, wait a second. How would signs and wonders be tied to the faithful use of ordinary, may we even say at times, boring sermons or, uh, or just mundane practice of the Lord's Supper. Shame on us, but that, that is how it feels. How would signs and wonders spring out of that? Remember what Jesus himself once said, Mark 6. Jesus was somewhere and he, he said, I, I can't do signs and wonders here because of unbelief. Now, we all know that Jesus could, his ability, he could do signs and wonders there. But you see, it was God the Father's will that signs and wonders be something that were, were gifted in the context of hearing the word and believing. And so Christ held himself to that. He was in a place there was no one believing. So he didn't perform signs and wonders. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Because the word was going forth, the community was fearing, and the believers uh, were full of faith, so the apostles were doing wonders everywhere. There's even a verse in Acts that indicates that people were trying to get a hold of Peter's handkerchief because it would heal you if you grabbed it. What a time to be in the church. But this verse, 43, is telling us that's not the most amazing thing in terms of receiving God's grace. It's a result of the more important thing, continuing in the means of grace. And then we also see, uh, just quickly, 44 through 47, the results in believers' lives. What are the results of the word sacraments and prayer in believers' lives? As you look at those sentences, you see that uh, what happened in church wasn't left at church. They broke bread together. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. Ever ever have those roots of bitterness towards someone else in the church? The, the frustration with someone else? Do, do you ever say to yourself, wait a second, we ate from one loaf last Sunday. And we drank from the same cup. Don't you think that would make you more prone to say, I'm going to leave that frustration. Maybe I'll even ask them over for dinner. That's what you see in in these verses. They broke bread together on the Lord's Day, celebrating the sacrament. And then they couldn't get enough of each other. Every day they were having meals together. That probably doesn't mean every single household had a meal at someone else's house every single day. It means, ideally, what I think is often the case in our own church, that there probably, if I mapped out all of your schedules, there probably wouldn't be a day when someone in the church wasn't doing something with someone else in fellowship. Men's breakfast, women's group, Working with a youth group, having a meal with another family, praying with someone on the phone. I think all of that's wrapped up in in what is described here. They couldn't get enough of each other, bread from house to house, desire for more fellowship, a desire for more discipleship. They had the, the sacraments and the preaching and the prayers on Sunday, and then every day they were at the temple to pray. They couldn't get enough. They couldn't get enough of devotional life together. And then uh, also the the practice of mercy ministry and evangelism is here. And so often we think, well, surely these these things like a sermon like this one or, or, or celebrating the Lord's Supper, that gets in the way of us thinking about justice and culture. But you look at what the early church did coming out from this. They cared for those in need. They made sure, even if I had to sell property to make sure that you aren't starving, I'm going to do it. That was the church, and it's a result of the means of grace. And so we see these things, word, sacraments, prayer, given us in 42, and they're given to us. And then we're told they're worth it. If you really embrace what God has given us to receive his grace, look at the change in your life. Look at what your church could do. They weren't a big church. Actually, initially, they didn't have buildings either. Look what they did. So this fall, I want us to look at the outward, and ordinary means of grace. Outward, again, in contrast to the inner work of the Holy Spirit. The outward alone does nothing, right? No Holy Spirit working in your heart, no benefit from the word. No benefit from the sacraments. In fact, 1 Corinthians tells you the Lord's Supper will be a curse, not a blessing. I I think it's fair to say the same thing about baptism. No faith in your entire life on the judgment day. Baptism will not benefit you. Rather, it will stand against you before the throne. Prayer. No benefit. No benefit if you're not praying by the means of the Holy Spirit lifting your prayer up to heaven and presenting it through Jesus Christ. But outward, how does the Holy Spirit choose to work in our lives? Ordinary. Ordinary, we might think boring. We want special and extraordinary. Well, look at Acts 2. It might be ordinary, but it has extraordinary consequences. What do we mean by ordinary though? We mean accessible. Taking me years of praying over the word ordinary to come up with that replacement word. But I think it's a, a worthwhile, I'm not trying to replace it by the way, but to, to help us understand what, what is meant by ordinary means of grace in the Catechism accessible. You know, God could choose that the outward means of grace for you to, to, to just be filled with the Spirit and experience His grace could be to smell this amazing flower that could only be found if you make a pilgrimage to Mount Ararat and climb up into a crevasse and find Noah's Ark and there magically in the snow is a flower. This isn't true, by the way. Uh, is a flower. And if you make such a pilgrimage, you smell it and you experience grace. Could, could God make the outward means of grace, something like that, sure he could. If he, I don't know why he would, but he could. Like so many mystic religions throughout history, but instead he gives you something accessible. You don't have to take off work for it. Daily, you have the word to read. Weekly, you have preaching to hear. Monthly, you have the sacrament to enjoy and constantly you have access to the Father in prayer. Accessible. The Holy Spirit gives us outward and accessible means to make use of. I know I'm out of time, but I, I'm going to add this anyway. Something I hear a lot. Let, let me first say something I don't hear a lot in the church today. I haven't often been asked How can I experience more grace in my Christian walk? I assume, knowing you all, that that's because you know the answer to the question. How can I experience more grace? Go to the word, sacraments, and prayer. But but maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe the fact we're not even asking that question says a lot about why we're struggling with depression, anxiety, divorce, etc. Because we're not asking how... Can I experience God's grace? What what can I take hold of to be taking hold of God? Something I do hear a lot, though, is people saying, but God, couldn't God use anything? Couldn't God use any means? And of course, that's true, isn't it? I just painted this absurd snare. Not really absurd. I mean, really, I'm just borrowing from Buddhism and other things, the idea of climbing a mountain. But, you know, God God could use anything. God once used a tree, right? Ordinary means of grace. God once used a tree. There was a short guy. He couldn't see Jesus. He climbed a tree. He could see Jesus. And Jesus spoke to him. So the tree, in that instance, a sycamore tree, was a means of grace that God put in his life. Won't always be the same for you when you climb a tree. But it was in that instance. God God once used a big old fish. It's not normal for people to get swallowed by a fish in the middle of a hurricane-level storm and in the middle of the ocean and survive for three days long enough to contemplate their sins, repent, and seek the Lord, and then be spit up on dry land perfectly fine. That's not normal. That was a means of grace in the midst of that storm. So the, in answer to the question, can't God use anything? The answer is yes. But of, of course when we're asking that question, we're not really asking that question, are we? When we say, well, couldn't God use anything? If we say yes, but then say, but he's chosen primarily to use this. Or the sacraments. He's primarily chosen to use this. And what do we hear today in the church? This is a 2,000-year-old book. How could it be relevant? How could it really affect my life? That's what, that's what we hear. So what we really mean when we say couldn't God use anything is shouldn't God use whatever means I want him to use? I want him to use what? Uh, a faith healing maybe. Uh, I want him to use a shack in the woods. I, I know I'm picking on that, but that's how our, our culture thinks, right? I'm going to go off and find Jesus. The answer to that is, but if Jesus has chosen the means, he could use anything, and he's told us, this is, this is where you'll find me when you search for me with your heart. Then we should certainly grab hold of it. If we would have healthy marriages, if we would have uh, a, 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 any chance at all in the fight against depression and anxiety ruling our lives, if we would live in hope, and if we would have a strong church or churches, then Christ tells us where to go. To the word, the sacraments, and prayer. He has given us means.